But I'll encourage you, if you brought a Bible, uh, you'll need one this morning. You can grab it and turn to John chapter 17. Um, if you forgot a Bible, there should be one in the, the pew in front of you. You can use that. And uh, obviously, if you don't own a Bible, please just take that one. That would be our gift to you. We want you to have a Bible. But we uh, last week finished up John chapter 16. Uh, and John 14, 15, and 16 is commonly known as the upper room discourse. It's this final teaching that Jesus gives to his 11 remaining disciples, right? Judas has gone off to uh, conspire and betray Jesus. And so last week, Jesus finished the teaching. And now in John chapter 17, we get what is commonly called the high priestly prayer. It's this long prayer that Jesus prays to the Father. It's the longest recorded prayer that we have of Jesus. I mean, we have other prayers recorded of Jesus, right? He teaches his disciples how to pray the Lord's prayer. He prays at Lazarus' tomb. Um, he prays in the garden. But they're all these like very short recorded prayers. And here we have an entire chapter of Jesus praying. And so when we think about, okay, this is Jesus praying this chapter is so rich and full of amazing things that Jesus says. I don't know if you know people that, um, that you go, when I listen to them pray, like it is profound. There's a few people in my life that it's like when I pray with them, I don't know what it is, but it's like, man, they just, they just know how to pray, right? So my father-in-law is, is one of them, like Molly's dad, um, and he often, when we do family gatherings and meals, he will pray. And listen, there's nothing like, you know, fanciful or he doesn't use big words. But when he prays, it's like everyone, including the children in the room, just go quiet and they just listen to Papa pray because there's just something about, man, when he prays. So here's Jesus, right? Here's Jesus praying to his Father. And so there's some very profound things in this chapter. Really, this prayer that Jesus gives is broken up into three sections. Um, Jesus, first of all, prays for himself, and then he prays for his 11 disciples that are there and we can assume are, are hearing him pray. And then he ends by praying for us. So I don't know if you realize that, but you know, 2,000 years ago, Jesus prayed for us, you and me, sitting in this room. Everyone that would believe in him through the apostles' words, he prays for. So today we want to look at just the first five verses where Jesus prays for himself. And on Monday, I was like, we'll just do the whole prayer. It's one prayer. How hard could it be? And then I was like, okay, we have to split this into three weeks. Um, so what we're going to do is each week, you know, Jesus, let's look at how he prays for himself. Let's look at how he prays for his disciples. Let's look at how he prays for us. But Jesus prays for himself in verses one to five in three kind of areas. One, Jesus asks for glory. Two, Jesus claims authority. And then thirdly, Jesus defines for us what eternal life is. And so what I want to do this morning is just read those five verses and then let's look at each of those three areas that Jesus prays about. So if you have a Bible, uh, John 17 verses 1 to 5, this is what it says, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come, glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, 
that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. The reading of God's Word. So we're told in verse 1 that when, when Jesus had finished speaking these words, so when He's done teaching His disciples, He's wrapped up everything that He wants to say to them at this moment, it says that He lifts His eyes to heaven and He begins to pray. And what He starts with is, Father, the hour has come. Now, I want to remind you, like, what hour? What is Jesus talking about here? What He means is His impending crucifixion. That was the hour, and really all along, if, if you've been tracking with us through the whole Gospel of John, Jesus talks about this lots. Really, for the first half of the book, he says over and over again, my hour has not yet come. Like in chapter 2, um, when, when they ask Jesus, hey, turn water into wine, when, when his mom asks him that, Jesus says to Mary, my hour hasn't come. Uh, in chapter 7, verse 6, Jesus says to his brothers when they say, hey, are you going up to Jerusalem? He says, my time is not yet come. In chapter 8, verse 20, we're told nobody arrested Jesus because his hour hadn't come yet. And then we've seen in this last week of Jesus' life, starting with the triumphal entry and he comes to Jerusalem, Jesus very specifically said, now my hour has come. His hour meaning when he would be betrayed and arrested and crucified. And so now Jesus prays, literally, like this is maybe hours before he's arrested. He prays and he says, Father, the hour has come. Like it's here now. And so what does Jesus pray? Here's his first request in verse 1. He says, glorify your Son so that the Son may glorify you. So Jesus' first request is that God would glorify him. And even in verses 4 and 5, I mean, Jesus elaborates a little bit. He says, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory I had with you before the world existed. So Jesus asks that God the Father would glorify him. And we need to unpack this a little bit because like, so for instance, if I was praying and I said, God, would you glorify me? We would go, eh, heretic, that's really dangerous, red flag. You can't ask God to glorify you. You're just a, a human being. And so a couple of things. On, on one hand, first off, this is another claim to divinity. This is Jesus asking God the Father to glorify him. And we're told pretty, uh, pretty explicitly in Scripture God doesn't glorify anybody except himself. Like Isaiah 42, 8, this is God speaking. He says, I'm the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. And we could go on and on in the Old Testament. God says, I don't share glory with anyone. I don't give glory to anyone. Only glory should come to me. And now Jesus says, Father, glorify me. So that's a pretty big claim. Right? Jesus is claiming to be God in this moment. He's claiming glory for himself. And not only that, but in verse 5, he says that he shared glory with the Father before the world began. Like another claim to divinity. For a, a human being to say, I shared glory with God the Father before the world was even created. 
Like, that's a massive uh, statement to make. So on one hand, this is a, a claim to divinity, and we've seen so many of them in the Gospel of John. It actually makes me laugh when people, um, including, you know, false religions like Mormonism, and Jeho- they'll say, well, Jesus never actually claimed to be God. He claims to be God all over the place, just not in ways that, not in language that we would use, but here again, by him asking for glory, he's saying, I'm God. Father, glorify me, just like I glorify you. So Jesus is, is making claims that no mere human being can claim. But what exactly is Jesus asking for? What does it mean when he says, glorify your son so that the son may glorify you? Now, right away, the word glorified often means to praise and to honor. So very well, Jesus could be saying, God the Father, would you honor me? Would you glorify me? Would you praise me as I praise you? And often when we, we, we hear the word glorify, that's the, word, the, the first thing that we mean. We mean that we're just going to praise God. We're glorifying Him. But the word glorify actually has several different meanings depending on the context of the passage. The word glorify also means to clothe with splendor. So really, that fits too. What Jesus is saying is, God, would you glorify me? Father, glorify me with the same glory that I had before the world existed. So what we know is when when the incarnation happened, when Jesus came, He didn't lay aside His divinity like some teach, right? He didn't empty Himself of being God. What did He empty Himself of? Glory. He laid aside His glory, and it, it was like His glory was hidden as He walked on the earth. All of the majesty and the beauty and the wonder of being God was hidden from people. Isaiah 53, speaking of Jesus, says he had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. Do you know what that means? When Jesus walked the earth, he looked pretty average. He just looked like a normal Jewish man. He didn't, he didn't have a halo, right? He didn't float around as he walked. He didn't wear the blue beauty sash that we have in our pictures. He, didn't, he, didn't, he wasn't impressive physically. He was a normal-looking man. His glory as God was, was, was hidden. And this is why when, when the disciples go up on the mountain with him and he's transfigured in front of them, What that basically means is like the veil was pulled back and they saw Jesus in all of his glory. That's why it's so an amazing story that these disciples saw Jesus for for who he really is, his glory not hidden anymore. So what Jesus is saying is, God the Father, would you clothe your son in splendor, the same splendor I had with you before the world existed. Before the world existed, Jesus' glory wasn't hidden. It was in full display. And so really what Jesus is asking God is, God, would you raise me from the dead? Would you ascend me back to heaven so that I will be clothed in the glory that I had before the incarnation, before I came to the earth? So think about that. Jesus is willingly going to the cross And that's how he is going to glorify God, willingly suffering. He's going to bring honor and praise to God by him giving his life as a ransom for many. But he's saying, God, would you glorify the Son? Three days later, would you raise me from the dead and clothe me in the glory that I had before I came? 
Like what he's saying is, or Father, reverse the self-emptying effects that the incarnation had and restore the splendor that I had with you before the world began. I mean, Jesus is asking God, the Father, that He would sustain Him through His suffering, accept His sacrifice on the cross, resurrect Him from the grave, restore Him to His pristine glory. So this really is just the glory of our redemption. This is the wonder of the cross, right? Jesus' death on the cross brings glory to the Father, and the Father raising Jesus from the dead brings glory to the Son, right? So, you see, each member of the Trinity, and we've seen this already, is wanting to bring glory to the other members. So, this is not what anyone thought, right? If you would ask the average Jewish person, this is not how the Messiah comes. This is not what the Messiah does. Even if you talk to people today and and they say, okay, what do you believe? I believe that God came to earth in human form. He was God and man. He went uh, willingly and he suffered and died on a cross and he was raised from the dead. People would go, you believe that? That seems a little bit far-fetched. Even Paul talks about that, right? When he talks about the foolishness of the gospel, no one would have guessed this is what brings glory to God, the death and resurrection of Jesus. It seems so counterintuitive, doesn't it? Like how can the brutal death of an innocent man bring glory to that person, Jesus, and the Father? How does that work? Um, One scholar wrote this, and I just thought, It's just so well written. I'm just going to read it. I'm like, I'm not going to try and reword it. But this is what he says. The crucifixion brought glory to the Father. It glorified His wisdom, His faithfulness, His holiness, His love. It showed the Father wise in providing a plan whereby He could be just and yet the justifier of the ungodly. It it showed Him faithful in keeping His promise that the seed of the woman should bruise the serpent's head. It shows Him holy in requiring this His law's demands to be satisfied by our great substitute. It shows Him loving and providing a mediator for us, a redeemer, a friend for sinful man as His co-eternal Son. The crucifixion brought glory to the Son. It glorified His compassion, His patience, His power. It showed Him most compassionate in dying for us, suffering in our stead, allowing Himself to be counted sin and a curse for us, buying our redemption with the price of His own blood. It showed him patient in not dying the common death of most men, but in willingly submitting to such pains and unknown agonies as no mind can conceive, when with a word he could have summoned his father's angels and been set free. It showed him most powerful in bearing the weight of all transgressions of the world, vanquishing Satan and despoiling him of his prey. That's how the cross and the resurrection bring glory to Jesus and the Father. And it's amazing to me that even in his final hours, before Jesus is handed over to be crucified, he's thinking of bringing glory to the Father. God, would, 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 what I'm about to go through, would that bring glory to me and to you? So Jesus asks for glory. Secondly, in his prayer, in, in, when he prays for himself, Jesus claims authority. In verse 2, Jesus says, you have given, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. So Jesus, in his prayer, he says, glorify me so that I can glorify you since 
Jesus, or, or God, you've given all authority to me, all authority over all flesh. And not only that, you've given authority to me to give eternal life to people. So already, again, through John, we've seen Jesus claim authority. In John 5, he says this, He, God the Father, has given him, Jesus, authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Jesus has authority to execute judgment. In John 10, Jesus says, No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. And I have authority to take it up again. He's talking about his life. He says, no one takes my life from me. I have authority to give it up and to take it back. Even in the Great Commission in Matthew 28, right? Jesus says to his disciples, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So what Jesus is talking about here is the universal authority of the Son. And I love that Jesus speaks with such confidence that he speaks in a way that it's already happened, right? Because some people would say, well... Jesus was given authority after his death and resurrection, and I would agree, but here he speaks as if it's such a done deal that he already has authority. So it's like the Father has given Jesus authority uh, 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 in eternity past, all authority over humanity based on the fact that, of course, Jesus is going to perfectly go to the cross and be raised from the dead. It's a done deal, right? So Jesus doesn't say, God, would you give me authority? I mean, bearing in mind, I actually get through what I'm about to go through. No, it's so confident that Jesus says, it's like I already have the authority. It's like I've already done it. And Jesus' authority extends even over our salvation. Jesus says, you've given me authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. Now, for lots of us, we don't like that because, again, we wrestle with the sovereignty of God even in our salvation. But, I mean, it's quite clear that Jesus says, Father, you've given me authority to give eternal life to everyone that you've given me. Now, Jesus is the one who gives eternal life. And I'm not going to belabor this point because we've talked about it lots in the Gospel of John because it comes up all the time in the Gospel of John. But God is the one who is sovereign even over our salvation. I mean, John 6, 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me. Jesus is talking about disciples. Everyone that the Father gives me, they'll come to me. Uh, John 6, 44, no one can come to me unless the Father draws him. Meaning, no one just wakes up one day and says, hey, I think I'll be a Christian today. No, God the Father has been drawing you if you make that decision. John 10, uh, verse 27 and 28, my sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life. They will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. So in his last prayer, Jesus is claiming authority over our eternal life. And again, it's this great mystery that God himself is the one who calls us. No one comes to God unless God draws him. And Jesus is the one who's been given that authority. It's quite amazing. So Jesus asks for glory. Jesus claims authority. And then lastly, Jesus actually defines what eternal life is for us. So he says, Father, you've given me all authority to give eternal life, and then in verse 3 he says, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. 
So eternal life, according to Jesus, is knowing God. And the word know in the Greek language is genosko, and it means to come to know and to recognize and to perceive. But it's more than just uh, like the, the Greek word, right? I talked about lexicons last week. The Greek word, when it's defined, it, it means especially through personal experience. So it's not like, I don't know if you've met people who are like, oh, yeah, I know Brad Pitt. And you're like, really? And we're like, well... Like my roommate in college, his second cousin once bumped into him. So it's like kind of like I know him. It's like, no, that's not what the word no means, right? When you're like, yeah, I've heard of that person. I kind of, I, I bumped into them. We went to the same school and I said hi once. That's not the word. It's not just knowing about someone. The word in Greek means firsthand experience with that person. So it doesn't just mean, right, solely intellectual knowledge, that's a part of it, but it is a living fellowship and relationship with God. Now, the reason that's really important, I mean, Jesus says that's what, you want to know what eternal life is? Knowing God. But we have to know that it goes so far beyond just knowing about God because you can know a great deal about God without actually knowing God. Um, You can study theology, you can love the Bible, and you can still actually not know God. You can know lots of facts about Him. I'll give you an example. Bart Ehrman, um, he's a New Testament scholar, and he's an atheist. Like if you, if you've, you may have read some of his books, but he began this kind of journey of digging into what the Bible says, and his conclusion, he still teaches the New Testament, because he's fascinated by this ancient book. But if you would ask him, and I looked up on some lectures and things, that he calls himself an agnostic atheist, which basically means he's not man enough to decide if he's actually an atheist. Well, maybe I'm wrong, right? So, uh, but he, he knows the Bible. He knows Greek. He studies the ancient literature. He probably knows the Bible more than most of us in this room, if not all of us. And yet, if you would ask him, is Jesus the Son of God? Is salvation through his death? He would go, no, of course not. So he knows about God and Jesus, but he does not know God. That's really important for us to get. Knowing about God does not equal knowing God. But here's what I find so fascinating. You and I, we often view, well, eternal life just means that you live forever, right? Eternal life means that you get to live forever. And sure, there's an element that's true to that, but listen, everyone lives forever, whether you believe in Jesus or not. We all live forever, but what you do with Jesus determines where you live forever. Is it going to be heaven or is it going to be hell? Like, everybody lives forever. So don't take eternal, eternal life as, well, you've been given eternal life, so now you live forever. And if you don't have eternal life, well, then you just kind of cease to exist. No, 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 no. Everyone lives forever. But eternal life means where are you going to spend eternity? And Jesus defines it as knowing God, meaning eternal life actually, we're not waiting for it to begin Eternal eternal life begins the moment that God draws you to himself and you confess your faith in Jesus, boom, your eternal life has begun. And this is what's amazing. The Old Testament promised this over and over and over again. 
one day people would know God personally with no need to go through an intermediator. We won't need a, a Moses type. We won't need the priest to offer sacrifices. There was all of these promises, right? Jeremiah 31, 34, speaking of this future day, the prophet says, no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. So what Jeremiah is saying is there's coming a day when I won't have to go to the experts and say, well, I don't know God. Can you teach me how to? He says, no, everyone in that day, right? Speaking of, of heaven, Habakkuk 2.14, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea, right? Eternal life is that the earth is filled with the knowledge of the glory of God. We will know him. So Jesus says that authority to know God has been given to me. And Jesus says, I'm the one that gives eternal life to people. And eternal life is knowing God. So like put the pieces together. What Jesus is saying here is I have all authority. I'm the one that gives eternal life, meaning I'm the one that gives you the ability to know God. That's what eternal life is, knowing God. So here's what Jesus doesn't mean. Jesus doesn't mean that you and I have to crack some kind of secret code to know God. We don't have to do some kind of mystic, ancient, let's light a candle and go under a blanket and that's when we'll know God. Jesus says, no, knowing God is a matter of God's grace towards you. Knowing God is Jesus giving you eternal life. It's intimacy with God the Father and you can grow in your knowledge of God. You grow in your relationship with God. So even if you're married, think of your marriage. Um, my wife and I have been married for 11 years. And if you think about, like, my, your marriage should be your closest human relationship, right? And so I don't just know things about my wife. Like, if you were to ask me, well, what's Molly like? I wouldn't pull out, like, a piece of paper and go, uh, Molly has brown hair, uh, she's five foot seven. I wouldn't just list facts about my wife, right? I know Molly more than anyone else knows her, and our relationship has actually grown deeper in the last 11 years. There's things today that I'm realizing about my wife that I didn't realize when we got married 11 years ago. I go, wow, that's amazing. So, so for instance, Molly knows me better than anyone else. When I come home and I've had a rotten day, and it's like your guys' fault. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> when I've, <laughs> I've had a rotten day or it's just been so hard and I'll come home and I'll think, right? I'm putting on a pretty good front being like, how was your day? It was great. And I'll do things and then she'll just come up to me and go like, you had a pretty rotten day, huh? I'm like, how do you know that? Because she just knows me, right? She knows. She can see through. I can fool a lot of people. I'd be like, yeah, my day was great. I haven't had a hard week. It's fine. But I can't fool my wife. Why? Because she knows me, and we've built that relationship. That's what Jesus is talking about. Eternal life is knowing God the Father, not just a list of theological facts about God. It's knowing Him, and then not only that, as you walk with Jesus, it's growing in your knowledge of Him. So what does this mean for us then, right? Jesus prays these amazing things for Himself. God, would you glorify me? Jesus prays. As I glorify you, he claims authority over everything, 
even our eternal life, and then he defines eternal life as simply knowing God and knowing Him, knowing Jesus. So, a couple of things that means for us. One, you and I should marvel at the glory of the cross. The death and resurrection of Jesus is glorious. And it seems so strange to say, right? Capital punishment from the Romans when they crucified people. I mean, that's glorious. This is how Jesus brought glory to the Father. This is how the Father brings glory to Jesus, and we should marvel at it. We marvel at it because this is the opposite of how the world would do things, isn't it? The world's like, you want to start a movement, you want to do something, then you got to do it. The, uh, you, wait, your, your leader is going to die? A brutal death? And then be raised from the dead and ascend into heaven and leave these 11 idiots that don't know what they're doing to spread the gospel? That's your plan? It is so backwards to how the world would do things. That's, that's why Paul, like I said, in 1 Corinthians 1, he says this, Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews, foolishness or folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, there it is, those who are being drawn by God, those whom Jesus is giving eternal life to, those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, the cross, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God for the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. That's why when you hear the gospel and you are a follower of Jesus, you go, that is God's power. And the world says, that's foolishness. So, I mean, the, the glory of the cross is amazing. This is how God saved humanity, and we should just marvel at it. We should never tire of hearing of the glory of the cross. Secondly, we should rest in the authority that Jesus has. Jesus says he, that He has all authority over all flesh, and He has authority to give eternal life, and you and I, we can rest in, in His authority Jesus is the one who's in control, not us. And like I said, I, I know that sometimes we wrestle with all of this language of God is the one that draws us. Jesus is the one that gives eternal life. None of you would come to Jesus unless he was drawing you. And we wrestle with that. And I get it because the church has wrestled with it for thousands of years. Where's this mixture between God's sovereignty and our free will to, de de uh, to decide? But actually, the, the sovereignty of God... It, it actually shouldn't bother us. We should just rest in that. God is going to call who He's going to call. And I know people say, well, well, how do you know if He's calling this person and not, not that person? You don't know. Share the gospel with everyone and then allow Jesus to draw who He's going to draw. It's not up to us. So it actually, on a few a few practical ways. It changes the way that I've, I pray for people because I, I used to pray just in agony saying like, God, give me the wisdom. I got to share the gospel better. I have to be more creative. I have to make it more clear. I have to tear down their arguments. And listen, there's nothing wrong with apologetics and explaining things, but it changes the way that I, I've prayed for people because now I pray, God, would you draw that person? Jesus, would you grant so-and-so the gift of faith and repentance in you? You are the one who has to do it. Help me to be faithful to just share the gospel, but God, would you draw them? I can't draw them. Jesus, would you draw them? It changes the way that I've, I've, I've prayed for my own kids. 
So I've shared this story before, but years ago, uh, three, maybe four years ago, there was a funeral at the church, and my youngest, uh, Lucy, who was probably five at the time, she came, and I was dropping stuff off, and she saw the picture of the person that had passed away, and and they were setting up, and she was asking, well, what does that mean? What's going on at the church? Why is this picture here? And I explained that she had died, but she knew Jesus, and so she trusted in him, and she was with Jesus now, and it's actually a, a celebration. And I could see my youngest kind of looking, and yeah, you know, I don't really trust Jesus. And uh, as a parent, I was like, uh, and like the alarm bells are going off in my head, and I'm like, you have to, you have to, what are you talking about? But by God's grace, it was like this moment of peace came over me, and I just didn't panic. I didn't go, you can't say that. And I just explained the gospel, and you know, mommy and daddy, we trust in Jesus, and this is why we can trust in Jesus, and this, he died for us, and he's raised from the dead, and he wants us to have a relationship. I just explained very clearly, you know, the gospel, and I was done. It was just kind of like waiting for a, what do you think? And she said, yeah, I just don't trust him. And I was like, okay. And I remember going home and sharing with my wife. And so we just began to pray, God, would you open my daughter's eyes to the gospel? God's the one who's got to save her, not me. So I was like, God, grant her the gift of repentance. And it was amazing. A few, a few years later, we've just been praying. We've been putting the gospel in front of our kids, praying that God would open their eyes. And on a random drive to school, which if you know where we live, it was like 45 seconds. On a random 45 seconds, I think I want to follow Jesus. And I was like, okay. And we talked about it, and she prayed in the car with me, and she became a believer. Praise the Lord. It had nothing to do with me, right? It was Jesus drawing her. So listen, you can rest in that and faithfully share the gospel, but you can rest. You are no one's savior. Jesus will draw who he's going to draw, and we share the gospel with everyone. And then thirdly, we should desire to grow in our knowledge of Jesus. But how do we do that? Right? Eternal life is knowing God and His Son, Jesus. That's what eternal life means. And we should desire to grow in our knowledge of Jesus. It's like, it's like your closest, right, with your wife or your husband. You should desire to know them more and more and more. It's the same with our relationship with God. We should desire to know God more and more. But here's the problem. Lots of times it's kind of pitched as, well, um, you just have to do this secret thing. Right? You just have to like light this candle, and I, I joked about that, but I've literally heard that. You want to get intimate with God, you light a candle, you focus on it, you say the same mantra over and over and over, and then God will unlock secret things. And I'm like, no, that's, that's foolishness. Right? So there is no like secret trick, and it, it bothers me so much because then people get up on stages like this and they go, I've unlocked the next level of intimacy with God. Let me tell you peons who know nothing how to do it, and then we all leave going, I don't know God as good as that guy. Oh, I feel terrible about my walk with Jesus. This is what it means to know God, right? God has given us, Scripture says, everything we need, right, for life and godliness, everything we need. So how do you know God? We pour over Scripture, but we don't just catalog it as, now I know more things about God. What we do is we pour over the words of Jesus and the apostles and the, the Old Testament and the New Testament. We pour over it, and then we meditate on it. 
and then that turns into praise of God for who he is. So that's how you grow. And you go, that seems very simple. It is, right? There's no trick. We pour over Scripture. We meditate on it. We want to know who God is. And then we take that knowledge, and we don't just sit on it. We turn it into praise for, for who he is. And then you grow in the depths of your knowledge of God. So there is no trick. But I will tell you this. This is who God looks for. Right? If you go, I want to know God more. I want to know who Jesus is. God tells us the type of person that he looks for. Someone who is humble and someone who is contrite in spirit, meaning someone who is broken. The word contrite literally means crushed or crippled. Like Isaiah 66 two, all these things my hands have made. And so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Jesus put it this way in Matthew 5, 3, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. This is the type of person God looks for, not someone who goes, hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to crack the code and learn tips and tricks on how to, you know, know God more. God looks for someone who trembles at his word, comes in humility and in brokenness and says, God, I just want to know you. Help me to know you, God. Like this longing and this humility to, I, I don't even deserve to know you, God, but help me to know you. That's who God looks for. And then as you study who God has revealed himself to be, then you begin to meditate on it, and then you turn that into praise for who God is. And I'll tell you, you will grow in your knowledge and your love of God if you do those things. So, Father, I just thank you for your word, and what an amazing insight to to have this prayer of Jesus recorded for us. This last long prayer before Jesus, you were arrested and crucified. And so I just praise you, God, for the glory of the cross. Um, humanly speaking, it doesn't make sense in our human minds that something so awful would bring glory to you, but that that is the wonder of the cross, that on the cross, Jesus, you were bringing glory to the Father, and the Father was glorifying you through that and through your resurrection. That is what purchases our redemption and our salvation, and so we just marvel. We praise you for the wonder of the cross. And Jesus, in your prayer, you claimed to have all authority, including authority over our eternal life. And I just pray, God, that we would rest in that, that it would change the way that we witness to people, that it would change the way that we pray for people, that we don't have to feel like we need to be the saviors of people, but our job is to just be faithful to share the gospel. And Jesus, we ask that you would just draw people to yourself. We don't have to figure out all the details of that. Oh God, would you just draw people? And then lastly, Jesus, you defined for us what eternal life is. And on one hand, it seems so simple that eternal life is just knowing you. And so I pray that we wouldn't fall into traps and, 
and, and, and these ideas that there's secret things that we can unlock and ways and tricks that we can do to know you more. God, you've given us everything that we need. And so I pray that we would have humble, contrite spirits, that we would come to you with a desire to know you, that we would study your scriptures, your word, that we would meditate on it, and that that would then turn into praise for who you are, and that that would deepen and deepen and deepen our knowledge of you. So God, just do that work in us, and thank you that you are such a good God and so gracious and merciful towards each one of us. And so we just pray all of this in your mighty name, Jesus. Amen.